Welcome to the Orion Podcast, hosted by Jessa and Laurel of A Stellar Co., a podcast that connects you with the knowledge and resources you need to drive a more conscious form of capitalism. Orion starts now. Transform business, change the world. That's the Tory Project's mission. If you're concerned about environmental degradation, social injustice, or the shredding of our democracy, check out the Tory Project. This exciting new organization teaches entrepreneurs how to build highly profitable businesses that also act as a force for good in the world. Follow Tory Project on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Check out David J. Farron on LinkedIn to watch his videos designed for first-time founders and entrepreneurs. Sign up to join their next bootcamp or volunteer to help out at www.toryproject.org. I think about that and it's, you know, it's very true. All right. You're live with us. <laughs> hey, Laurel. Hey, Jessa. Who's our guest today? We have Jared Chris Kuoka. Did I do that right? You did it right. It's a uh, good, good inflection. <laughs> Tried. Uh, and how do we know Jared? How, do, how are um, we connected? Yeah, welcome, Jared. Thanks for joining us. Um, <laughs> it's too late to back up now. We're live. Um, well, Jared, I actually met him through a really fun way. We are uh, Laurel and I with the Seller Co., and Jared, um, as uh, you know, founder of Upcycle, we are participating in a fellowship program or a fellowship hosting program, I should say, uh, Young Leaders of America, Latin Young Latin America Initiative. Young I, Leaders. I should look at the acronym. Wiley. Wiley, yeah. And um, basically, it's this uh, program that's hosted and funded by the U.S. State Department to increase um, business relationships between um, the United States and Latin America. And there are these professionals and entrepreneurs um, with young leaders of the Americas Initiative who are then partnered with companies in the United States. And so this fellow, um, usually they, they come here right now with COVID, it's remote, but um, it's like a four to six week program. And it's really cool. So anyway, we are on a, a call um, with companies across the United States that are hosting these fellows, Jared and I are both on it. And um, somehow we found out we're both from San Diego and it's like, Oh, let's talk. And then when we were talking about the program, I was like, Oh wait, you sound, you sound pretty cool. Like your business sounds awesome. I was like, will you please come on our podcast? And uh, anyway. And it turns out you, you were connected to Rob Greenfield too, who, who is also on our podcast. And that all comes back to ocean beach where yep. I live. Do you live in Ocean Beach? I do. Oh, awesome. I, I, I almost just County said lady. my address live. Sorry, go ahead. What? So you're both, I thought you were both North County ladies. That's that's awesome that you're part of uh, part of the People's Republic of OB. <laughs> that's so true. Yeah, it's been it's been great. And um Jared, just a quick note, you were there when you were telling us a story before we went live about how you were there when Rob was thinking about making his bamboo bicycle to travel across the US. You were there where it began. What were what was like one of your very first memories of, of his experience? Um I remember going over to visit Rob. We we'd been introduced and we talked a few times and he was in this really exciting transition from his his advertising business to what he's become. Um, but I remember him talking about, he said, you know, come on over, let's chat. We were kind of banging ideas around about the trip that he was taking. I was trying to figure out how I could help him out. Um, and I just remember like, you know, hanging out in his apartment he's walking around barefoot. Um, we got in the backyard. He's got like all sorts of plants and rainwater harvesting equipment and all this stuff. And it's like this insanely tiny, like maybe a hundred square foot garden area behind his apartment. And it's like half shadowed. But despite the fact that it was like northern exposure, not direct sun, Rob was managing to grow all of his own stuff. And we just kind of like walked through there and he was telling me about how he was going to compost his uh, his poop on the trip and wanted to make it as sustainable as possible. And I just I was really impressed with the degree of discipline that Rob had and like the rules and structures that, that he was setting for this trip to keep it as authentic and like is like legitimately sustainable and self-sufficient as possible. And he did it. I mean, I still to this day, I'm floored that he did it. And I'm blown away with every new kind of adventure and an activity he does. But I just remember like he had principles and how he lived and then he was importing those into his trip. And it's been cool to see the the journey that he's been on. 
That's that's amazing. I wonder, I wonder if OB will be like uh, the hate or something, you know, like someday. Yeah, lower hate Ashbury. <laughs> in like, you know, 30 years since like, oh, OB is where all these things started. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, Jer, I mean, can so you have Upcycle, of course. That's like how um, what we got to talking about. And I know you have a history with your own environmental um, endeavors. And so can you explain uh, what Upcycle is? Yeah, so Upcycle and Company, um, as the name kind of implies, we're focused on turning different types of waste into new products. Um, but in particular, we're focused on the fertilizer industry. Um, we've created in kind of a, we call it like the third leg of fertilizer. So traditionally, there's like broadly speaking, synthetic fertilizers, there's organic fertilizer, so the OMRI certified stuff, and then there's active fertilizer. And that's our brand we've created. Um, and really what it's about is helping our customers get off of fertilizer, kind of breaking that cycle and addiction and need for fertilizer that's been perpetuated since, you know, really the industrial revolution, particularly post-World War II um, with the repurposing of chemicals for fertilizer. So um, what our hope is, is that by focusing on not just, we sort of see there's above the ground and below the ground. So the above the ground traditional nutrients help grow, but they don't help to improve what's going on below the ground. And that's the most important part. You can get soil to a, a level, it's referred to as regenerative agriculture right now in the farming space, where it's so healthy and so robust from a microbial perspective, from a carbon perspective, organic matter perspective, that it will actually effectively self-regulate and self-fertilize to keep growing plants. Um, we've sort of destroyed that cycle with the last 70, 80 years of industrial agriculture. Our focus is to restore soil to that value where it can grow itself. And ideally we have to move on to a new area to provide a new upcycle product for. As I say, so it sounds like you, the goal is to almost put yourself out of business or at least this product line. Yep. That's it. Yeah. We, you know, if, if that were to happen someday, that means we've literally changed the world. Wow. And that's a big deal. I mean, you mentioned the, the word of the day, regenerative. Mm-hmm. And I think you explained the definition via a story and a context. What is um, Upcycle and Company's definition of regenerative agriculture? Yeah, so we and we look at a couple different spaces. So both agriculture and different types of commercial customers. But to kind of answer your question, the regenerative side, it's really about empowering something, in this case, it's soil, in its ability to be self-sufficient, in its ability to restore itself without the need for let's just say while minimizing external inputs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get it. It's like, I, I imagine the um, echinoderms, the starfish, when they lose, lose one of them and they can regenerate it back, they're self-sufficient. They don't need external forces to grow back there. Yeah, I would say it's, it's similar to the kind of the um, uh, sort of the parable of like teach a man to, or give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day, teach a man to fish, he'll feed himself. Um, that is, you know, from like a broader ethos perspective, kind of where we're coming from with this is like, let's get our soils or, you know, as we kind of go forward, other realms that we function in other sectors that we function in to a point where like they can kind of regenerate themselves and they don't need chemicals and, and nutrients that are stripped out of mines in Belarus and China and Russia and, you know, you know, all over sort of the earth brought in through ports into the U.S. and imported and processed and refined and you know, sort of subject to all these like intense chemical processes that along the way are polluting and destroying the environment. Um, how do we do this in a way that honors the natural cycle that takes organic waste like with our product? Um, we have three different organic waste streams that when combined creates this unique chemistry that improves the soil biome and kind of improves the ability of soil to grow. So that, that's really going to get down the rabbit hole here, but that's really what we're trying yeah. to get self-sufficiency did you create this like did you create this blend in my apartment in ocean beach yes okay stand by what i said earlier about ob (laughs) so what's your background uh where should i start (laughs) (laughs) the last two weeks of your life now like what did you have formal education yeah how did you get into uh soil nutrient cycles and soil amendments and all that yeah. Um, no, thanks for that question. So yeah, in terms of how I got into like what we're doing right now, um, it is not linear to start. Um, I, you know, kind of really quick backstory. I grew up in a pretty small town, with a long farming legacy in Connecticut. Um, 
And my first job was cleaning greenhouses when I was 14. We're not going to say the name of the company because I don't want them to get in trouble. But uh, yeah, I, I really wanted to race mountain bikes. My parents said, okay, fine, you can do that. Uh, but you have to pay for half of the bike. And I said, okay, how do I do that? They said, we'll get you a job. So they drove me down to one of the local nurseries my mom used to go to a lot. And she introduced me to the owner and he said, all right, cool. You can clean my greenhouses. And I said, awesome. And he gave me five bucks an hour. And I felt like a, a king. I had some yeah. at that point in time. But yeah, so that, and then I would say like, um, also like my grandfather was, uh, he's a World War II vet and was very much of that victory garden generation. When he got back, him and my grandma had a huge garden in their backyard and they did till the day he passed away. Wow. Um, so we grew up around gardening. My mom and dad had a huge garden in our backyard and we always had, you know, pumpkins growing in the fall and tomatoes in the spring. Um, my mom to this day still has a huge herb garden. I go home and she makes, uh, what is it? Um, She's got lemon verbena and rosemary and all sorts of stuff growing out of the stuff that comes out of her garden. So it's pretty cool. Um, so I grew up around that. And my grandpa used to take me hiking a lot in the woods. And I always, I, from a very young age, like six months old, I always had a strong connection with the outdoors and the woods. Um, you know, we'd go hiking in the hills surrounding the valley we grew up in. So long and the short of it was I thought um, that what I wanted to do was be an environmental lawyer. And I got waitlisted at Vermont Law School, the school that I wanted to go to. And it was a very logical reason. I was 23. I'd been a ski bum for a year and a half after college and like didn't have any like re anything real, real to bring to the classroom. Um, and so they said, look, go get five years of work experience and volunteer with an environmental nonprofit. Read The Economist. All of those things will help you to understand what this career is about. And if you're still passionate about it, come back at 28 and reapply. You'll get in. And I was like, all right, cool. So I did that and I ended up moving out here. Couldn't find a job back east. Long and the short of it was I got sick the first week out here after getting in the water after a rainstorm going surfing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like for anybody that's been here, you know, more than like a year or so, they kind of know that. I didn't know that. I was just like, oh, cool. It's raining. No big deal. Thinking like it was back east where, you know, the environment sort of absorbs the pollution. So that got me involved with the Surf Rider Foundation. Um, I lost my job in finance in 2008 when the market crashed and started a nonprofit with a friend. That nonprofit kind of cascaded into um, a business working with wastewater agencies and cities and their environmental outreach, helping them just build coalitions to get some really cool, innovative projects to, like capture and recycle wastewater, turn organic waste, the, the stuff that you know we flush down our toilets and our sinks turn that into fertilizer and then recapture the methane that comes off the digestion process and turn into electricity. So I suddenly found myself like fully ensconced in this, this really cool and sort of, for me, it was a radical way of thinking um, about how we take our waste and reuse it. And then I started to learn that the stuff that we were looking at was actually more nutrient dense than any organic certified fertilizers or any <laughs> synthetic fertilizers that were actually better for the soil um, and then, yeah, the old general manager of the wastewater agency that was my main client challenged me one day and said, can you start a business that would take our waste and turn it into a fertilizer product? And I said, sure. So here we are now. And I think the cool thing for me is, you know, when I was about 26, I set an intention that, you know, since environmental law wasn't seeming like the path at that point in time and having been involved in litigation through Surfrider and as a leader in the local chapter, um, I realized that the day-to-day -day practice of law was probably not the best use of my skill set, but entrepreneurship was. So I've kind of been working over the last 15 years towards now where I'm at, which is building a business that takes our waste and turns it into a super valuable new product that solves like real, you know, human sustainability issues. Yeah. Um, there's a reason Jessa said we would get along. We have like the same life almost. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. I, you know, the minute you said you got sick from rainwater, um, I, my first career graduated in 2008 during the great recession. No one would hire me. I took a few bucks an hour job to capture stormwater for, for MS4 permitting. So for those of you that don't live in this area, when the rain falls on cars and roads and everything else, it goes straight into a storm drain and straight out to the sea. Like our storm drains are, are at the shore. So when it rains, you go swimming in everything from oil and grease to heavy metals like zinc and anything that you could find on the grounds like litter, cigarette butts and everything, including fecal coliform bacteria from animals, humans, everything that anything that's on the ground washes away. And because it doesn't rain very often, it all accumulates. So when you do have a rain event, 
it's pretty gnarly what gets into the water. And then when you're out there surfing, you can get um, bad diseases like hepatitis and things like that. And so part of the environmental compliance industry is collecting stormwater samples and analyzing them for this contamination. So the, the city of San Diego, for example, can do street sweeping and clean up where it needs to be cleaned up and educate everyone about it. And well, that's why we do street sweeping. Yes. That's that why never we, crossed my mind. Yeah. It's in compliance never with our multiple separate storm sewer permit, MS4 permit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a compliance thing. It's not because we want to, you know, it's not a beautification. It's, it's always a what I thought real it legit human wow. health and environmental problem. And my career wasn't linear either like yours. And I just, we have a lot to talk about. Surfrider was like my first introduction to environmental nonprofits. And I too, I was in environmental consulting mm-hmm. for 12 years before I was grateful to meet mentors and advisors who were like, you are supposed to be an entrepreneur. Like, you're, and I wanted to be Aaron Brockovich for sure. I was definitely going to be Aaron Brockovich. Yeah. going to save all the coral reefs. I was going to do all these things from an environmental law perspective. And they're like, no, 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 boo. <laughs> you you need to be an entrepreneur and then enter Jessa. So I get you, Jared. I feel oh. you. Thank you for doing what you do. I'm so excited to talk to somebody who is addressing organic waste because San Diego, like many other places in the world, has a huge waste problem. Our landfills are are getting too full. They're at their max. They emit a bunch of gases. The gases are bad for the environment. Landfills at the max. We don't have a lot of composting facilities here. And we have like more horses per capita than anywhere else in the United States. So imagine all the manure that we have just goes straight mm-hmm. to the landfill. So there's all these like land use and environmental planning problems that a dense urban environment like San Diego has. And here you are, enter the next evolution of fertilizer, turning organic waste that's an actual problem for our city mm-hmm. into a commodity that can make, I'm assuming, households and commercial agricultural businesses successful. So is, is upcycle and company retail and commercial? It has been to now we're kind of, we're moving a little bit away from retail at this point. Um, so we've got two separate brands. There's native soil fertilizer. Um, so that's, you know, kind of our, our leading brand. We had that in target last year. So we, uh, it's, you know, well, let me kind of take it back to the basics. Walter Anderson Nursery, I want to give a shout out to them um, here in San Diego, especially James, the buyer down at the, uh, I point this way because he's, he's that way. Um, <laughs> he's in the Point Loma branch. James was our first customer. Um, he literally like that was, I drove my car over there the day we got our first boxes and he very enthusiastically put it on shelves and encouraged people to use it and gave it to some of the staff, you know, and they all seemed pretty happy with it. So um, started there, built up to, you know, we had about 40 retailers in Southern California by the end of the second year, and then jumped that up to 515 Target stores around the country last year. So you can still get us on Home Depot. Um, and then we've got a distributor that runs us through Amazon, Walmart, and a handful of others um, in terms of their, their dot coms. But really like where we see where we see the most impact is in the landscape space and in farms. So as it stands, 70%, 70% of, and let me say the third time, 70%. Seven zero. Seven zero of the nitrogen synthetic fertilizers that get applied to our city parks, that get applied to golf courses, that get applied to business parks where we go to, well, where we used to go to work before, you know, pandemonium struck. Um, Baseball fields, soccer fields, universities, any type of green or landscape space, even farms, 70% of that nitrogen doesn't actually get into the plant, right? Now, it, it varies based on soil level. I don't want to be too hyperbolic here, but up to 70% of that nitrogen ends up either in our groundwater, which pollutes ground wells and makes it undrinkable, or it runs off into streams, creeks, rivers, and coastline which is why you see things like hypoxic zones. So there's a there's an area off the Gulf of Mexico that's referred to sort of, uh, you know, unceremoniously as the dead zone. Um, it's about, it used to be about the size of New Jersey. It grows every year. So I think it, it's more like a tri-state area now. But basically what's happened is all of the runoff, the nitrogen and phosphorus runoff from large broad crops, so corn, soybean, et cetera, farms in the Midwest, 
runs down the Mississippi River. It sort of sits there at the mouth. And what it does is it causes algae blooms. So the algae sucks all the oxygen out of the water, causing a hypoxic area. So when fish or other sea life swim into or are overtaken by this, it kills them. So you basically have the, there's 40 dead zones as of, I mean, this is as of six years ago. It's probably, it may have increased around the United States and infinitely more around the world that are directly the result of nitrogen and phosphorus over application and runoff. The reason that this is happening is because there's not enough carbon in the soil. Carbon binds to nitrogen and helps hold it in the root zone. Um, our product is rich in carbon, right? So this is one of the ways that we're kind of dealing with this is trying to keep more of that nitrogen in the soil so the plant can actually use it. I met a, um, a guy who's probably about 25 up in Fresno at, a, uh, at an event through an accelerator we went through. He was telling me that his grandfather has been farming a piece of land up in the Central Valley outside of Fresno for 50, 60 years. And in that period of time, they've followed all of the standard fertilizer industries approaches to, to, to fertilization. He said that they had, uh, they had tests done on their wells up there. They have enough fertilizer there to last for 50 years at the current application rates and specifically nitrogen, like embedded in their groundwater because of all the leaching and runoff. And this is like well below the root zone. The trees are not getting benefit. The plants are not getting benefit from this. This is literally just like free nitrogen floating in, in their groundwater and polluting that so they can't drink it. Oh, my gosh. It's an environmental hazard. And I, I studied this in college, too. We would go down to Bahia Magdalena in Baja California sewer to study the effluent from a tuna fish cannery and its effects on creating an anoxic environment. And what would happen is all the nutrient loading would increase the number of phytoplankton in the water column. And yeah. so there's a lot of sunlight. It's, you know, in the tropical area, a lot of sunlight meets a lot of um, tasty food, mm -hmm. if you will, for these um, free floating plants in the water column and they overbloom. They just over reproduce, over create, and then it, it clouds the water column and it takes out all the oxygen. Birds can't, I mean, birds can't breathe. Fish can't breathe. And it's it's a gnarly situation. Like coastal eutrophication is another word for it, or algal blooms. And they happen in inland lakes. Like we have a lot of inland lakes in San Diego County that are just totally eutrophied. Yeah. But it's to people that aren't in the environmental studies industry, compliance industry, it's you can't really, you don't know it, like you can't see it. And and it's important to know that the land practices, the land management activities that we do, whether we're eating the food that comes from that land or we ourselves are cultivating that land, we need to be very mindful of what goes into that ecosystem because the soil itself, I think, is the biggest organism. I don't know what the right word is for it, but there's so much living biota in the soils that it, I mean, it's, it's just a lot. And so if it's out of whack, we're all out of whack. <laughs> yeah, there's north of a billion different types of bacteria in a tablespoon of soil. Wow. And it's like it's that that microbial life is so critical to allowing plants to grow. Those microbes eat the nitrogen and the phosphorus and all the stuff in the fertilizer. They're the ones that render it available to the plant, right? So it's yeah, it, it, Laurel, what you're saying is spot on. How did uh, who are you working with when you were doing all that work? Sounds like you've had some pretty cool experiences. Yes, I'm, you know, University of San Diego, ole, 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 um, is where I studied environmental studies and economics. And so I got to do, they made it um, more affordable to study abroad than stay on campus. And so we got to have a lot of our marine biogeochemistry courses. Um, so back in a second, I took a lot of marine science classes because environmental studies was a very small major. There were only three of us in my my class. And so we merged with the marine science kids and we got to study in Baja, Jamaica and Tahiti because those coastal systems are super sensitive mm -hmm. and you could just learn so much about um, ecosystem, healthy ecosystem functionality and also like an overload of inputs and what that does, like too much salt in the groundwater in Jamaica, you know, too much effluent where the whales breed in Mexico too much of this, that, and the other thing. And you just become aware of, oh my gosh, nothing that any of us does, but affects us all. Like we need to, everyone needs to study environmental studies and learn about the interconnectedness of all things and what we can actually do. And I'm just super pumped for um, native fertilizer and it being Walter Anderson. What a beautiful story. Point Loma OB. You're right. This is happening. Mm -hmm. um, 
And tell us, you had this mentor at your company that was like, I challenge you to come up with a product that turns our waste into a commodity. Um, and then how did that launch a business? What were, what were the key steps of being an entrepreneur in your industry that helped you launch this business and get to places like Target and Home Depot? <laughs> Very French, Trivian. Um Yeah, so I think... We could get into the psychographics of like, you know, why my Protestant work ethic has evolved into entrepreneurship. But I think for me, it's, you know, it's sort of a combination of things, right? It's like understanding ourselves and how we're best wired. Like some people are not wired to be entrepreneurs and that's a good thing, you know, and some people are, and that's also a good thing. There's no, well, it's not even a good thing. It's just, there's no good or bad. It's just, we are what we are. Um, you know, some of us are willing to and comfortable. In my case, I'm more comfortable taking risks and doing stuff like this than I am like in a typical W-2 employee job. So it's like it's better that I do this, whereas other people like, you know, they're not comfortable with that or they're not. That's not the highest and best use of, of their skills. I think that's really kind of the thing is like figuring out our highest and best use in this life and in this world based on like who we are, our unique experiences growing up. Um you know, just what our actualization. Yeah. Self-actualization. Totally. Yeah. And it's like, you know, unfortunately it's not stuff we get taught growing up necessarily. And it's really, really fortunate that have parents that like can kind of understand and verbalize that to us at the different evolutions of growth or have mentors. You know, I think about different friends that have done different things, you know, friends in the military, friends in business, friends working for nonprofit, different aspects of the government. Like, you know, everybody kind of ends up on these paths, but there's always like, someone along the way that was like, Hey, you should check this out. I think you might be good at this. You might yeah. enjoy this, you know, and not necessarily because of it's the job, but like, you know, I think about like, you know, I got a buddy who's, he's, uh, he's in the military and he always talks about like, you know, his experiences growing up, you know, growing up on, you know, family's ranch and doing farming work and doing ranching work and like just building things. And like somebody put the context of that into military life. And that's the path he went. You know, I've got, you know, another buddy um, who's from Seattle who's gone the entrepreneur route. And his dad was an entrepreneur and an inventor and, like, just, you know, always kind of encouraged his kids in different ways. You know, one of his kids ended up being a doctor and one of them ended up being an entrepreneur. But, like, they've kind of gone these different routes. I have friends who are, you know, in the trades. And, you know, they were, like, like my brother is really good at art. You know, he's become a general contractor. But, you know, he took that talent and skill set and he found a practical way to utilize it. My parents encouraged that. And he went into and studying art and fine arts and got a master's in fine arts. And it's turned into woodworking and sculpture. And now he, like, restores historic homes in Pennsylvania and does a beautiful job. Like, he's one of, like, three or four guys in the state that does fenestration, which is historic window restoration, you know. And totally. And I guess the path is you never know where those bits have encouraged. My parents encouraged me when I was 12 to go mow lawns. Cause I think they saw something sort of like a stubbornness or something in me that indicated I needed to do my own thing. And it's, you know, it's those little things along the way that get us to where we are. That's a long answer to your question. No, I, well, I, have, a, I have an interjection while we're going off, you know, while we're getting the details is that everything you're saying is reminding me of, we had a podcast guest a few weeks ago and she is a former psychologist and she um, coaches like high performing or high achievers or high performing executives. And she talks about people like who typically want to have high performance and like get mental blocks or whatever. She's like, and we're like, what causes this? And like, without skipping a beat, she's like childhood, like just period. She's like, everything goes back to childhood and how you're raised. So it's interesting that, you know, from her psychology standpoint and like from your observational, like life studies that you viewed, like all these people growing up and everybody going down their path that works for them. Um, and then that, yeah, she has said that a lot of this is shaped by, by childhood. And I, I like to underline what Jessa has been saying a lot lately that you also said, Jared, is a nonlinear path. Many um, students or young professionals are going, what am I going to do with my life? Right. Uh, especially now during COVID, these, these poor guys, it's like we got to get these people jobs. But they don't know. Um, and, and oftentimes they're not encouraged to explore these more rogue skill sets like the mm -hmm. arts and the musics and those sorts of things, because traditionally those don't lead to like a high paying job. But what we're hearing more and more through entrepreneurial stories is those passions 
Mm-hmm. Make you a multi-passionate entrepreneur and actually a more successful, well-rounded human totally. because you're leveraging all of the knowledge and resources that you've gained from different avenues and then come up with this beautiful gift. Like your yeah. beautiful upcycle and company gift wouldn't have happened had you not had all these components of your of your lifestyle come together. And I mean, I'm gonna go ahead and jump out on a limb and say you must be pretty fulfilled. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, if this if this all came screeching to a halt tomorrow, work, life, my existence on this planet, whatever, like I'm happy with where I'm at. Like it's it's all good. Um, yeah, it's you know it hasn't been without its struggles, but I think you know it's important though to to try things. You know, it's on one extreme. Steve Jobs always talked about you know when he talked about his college experience, he was like, yeah, calligraphy was cool. I checked it out. You know, and it's like the types, the typefaces that he developed became the design aesthetic for the Mac, you know, and you see it now, the, the level of detail of like, when you buy a new, new Mac, the boxes and how they fit the sound that the, the Mac makes when it closes, like all of those little things are so important. And I think that what they end up doing is, you know, they, they set the baseline for excellence and for pushing ourselves for excellence. I think ultimately that's what it comes back to, right. Is like, Anybody can go make any number of things. I think it's totally possible. A person's driven enough and knows how to find the right resources and inspires people. Like you can do anything you want to, particularly in a place like the United States. Um, but to do it well and to do it with excellence, that translates to I get to charge more for it mm-hmm. but because it's excellent, because it's well thought out, because it, it, it conveys more significant amounts of value. And I think that's the stuff that like – you know, you learn to sort of obsess over things. Like I remember, you know, when we were kids, you know, like my parents got me like kind of pushed me towards bike racing and we got into ski racing as kids. And like the things that were unique about it were how they went about it. So it was like, cool, you can do it, but you have to pay for half of your stuff, you know, and we, we didn't run off on fancy trips, but it was like, there's a local ski hill. They drop us off and let us do it. But then we came back and we had to take care of our skis. So that meant tuning the edges, sharpening the base and the side edge, flattening the base, waxing it you know getting all the junk out of it keeping taking good care of them we only had one pair of skis so it's like you know whereas i saw some of the you know some of the other kids in town that the parents you know had more disposable income had two three four pairs of skis a year which is like mind-blowing but when you think about like the lessons that we learned you know like sitting in our basement on fridays like horsing around with our skis we learned to care for things we learned to like focus on those details and then we saw the direct output of it so like when I would tune up my equipment and go out and ski, if it was icy, like I didn't fall over. If I didn't, I'd fall over uh, <laughs> with our bikes, you know, like we were racing mountain bikes. Like those are highly technical things. And like, I got a job in a bike shop to help support that habit. So like I could go in and I learned how to tune and rebuild my own bike, but I could tell the difference. Like, you know, if I'm flying, you know, flying through a course, my brakes don't work right. You know, I, there's a few times I hit trees and it, it hurt. You know, so you sort of learn very quickly, like the consequence of focusing on perfection in something. And I would say those lessons translate over. So, yeah, to your point, Laurel, like getting engaged in whatever it is that you're passionate about. Like for me, I think the most important thing I did was volunteer at Surfrider. I had no yeah. idea what it was going to lead to. I thought I was going to go to law school. Mm-hmm. You know, had I not done that, had I not made that decision after I got sick surfing, I could have just like laid in bed and groused about it. But like, so now let me go do something about it. And that, you know, the, the, the former CEO, Jim, used to talk about Surfrider being a springboard for greater activism. And I always thought that was a really cool way to look at it was it literally like it set people like myself and a lot of other folks that I know that have gone off in different directions. You know, some as entrepreneurs, some as environmental engineers, some as now employees at Surfrider. Like it kind of set us all up to find where we fit in the bigger picture and run with it. Oh, totally. It's kind of like there's a place for everything and everything in its place. And you kind of learn, learn about how all things operate. This reminds me of a a relevant anecdote. You mentioned, um, you know, biking and skiing and all these outdoor activities, but taking care of the equipment and taking care of the processes and going through the details. It's, it's almost like a form of meditation. And if you don't go through it, then you hit a bump in the road and you fall instead of hitting a bump in the road and standing right back up. And it reminds me of um, like, I was an elite competitive equestrian. And the only way that you get to the level of national competition and being the top is 
I mean, everything down to taking care of the hoof and the, my wraps and my saddle pads and my, like everything I cleaned it before I exercised the horse, exercised the horse. We jumped over fences. All of my outfit was perfect. My tack was perfect. And then we were done. You clean it up. You clean the horse, you walk the horse out. And this is just one practice. And then when you go to a show and you have, you know, four days of, of elite competition, everything is meticulously cared for. And I would I never had the same amount of resources that my competition did. My horse was never as nice as, as theirs was, but we always won because of the care and the connection that we had. And that takes you to leadership. I had no idea that being an athlete in an individual sport, mind you, I mean, there's a team of experts that help you, but it's not, it's an individual competition. I had no idea that would lead me to, to help lead teams from an executive level. It's those all the component parts of your childhood, if taken care of meticulously and enjoyed, then yes. they stick with you. And, and here you are showing up. And I often use things I've learned in, in horsemanship and equestrian life into business. Well, and I also think, too, what you guys are both talking about and the care and like the leadership, it's the care for the environment, too, yeah. because yeah. The, the skis and the horses, you can see it. Um, but you know, the care leads to long-term success. And so I think when you're talking about the level of the health of the soil, what you can't see below the surface, and you're talking about the water, you can't see these like, um, you know, contaminants in the water, but you know, if you don't take care of something, it's not going to work as well as it can. And, and I think to both of you guys, having the knowledge and seeing it and like getting into it and be like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. And I think that's what people like me were like, Oh my God, that's why we do street sweeping. I didn't even think about it. And when you don't have that level of, I guess, education or awareness for these issues, you don't care. And we just go about our day. We eat whatever produce is in the store and you don't think about it. And I think that is like such a huge hurdle for what you're doing and is getting people to care about something that they can't see and they can't see how it's impacting them until it's too late. Yeah, I'd agree with you. You're, you know, Jesse, you touched on a theme that um, Christian, the guy who I was his co-founder for the nonprofit that I mentioned, you know, 14 years ago, um, something that he and I used to talk a lot about. And we sort of settled on this term benevolent self-interest as being kind of an activating factor. Um And it's just that, like, for me, it was that getting sick surfing. I know other people that like, you know, like my, my ex's family was really involved in, um, um, in fundraisers around cancer because their father had cancer, you know, and I think about like all the different things that people experience, their whys, why they do things. Right. And it can be anything from like, Hey, I'm just going to go run a 5k to raise some money. to like, I'm going to go start a business and like, you know, get a bunch of investors and try to do something big, or I'm going to, you know, donate to a nonprofit or you know, go to an event every year to show some solidarity. Like there's different levels of like what we do or no, I shouldn't say levels. There's different levels of meaning that we find in these different activities, but it's just that it's finding that point of like, Hey, I do something and now it's being challenged or I can't do it the same way it was being done or relate to it the same way it was being done because of an outside influence, be it one thing or a, a variety of things. So I'm going to activate myself to do something about it. Right. It just, yeah. So that, that was our, like our sort of benevolent self-interest term. Um, was you think, I, I think there is a stigma attached to activism that there are these like weird fringe folks that like are super aggressive and like, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah, harassing you outside <laughs> Whole Foods when you're just trying to walk in and don't, I have one active, whatever. I can do another podcast. <laughs> they, well, well, they, go down the rabbit hole, Jessa. Hmm? Go, go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I have two organizations that one of them is Save the Children. And I know this sounds terrible, but I have a little comedy bit about like running away from the Save the Children. Well, I think it's a comedy bit. Running away from the Save the Children people to get away from them. And then you get like hit by a car because you're not looking both ways because they're, they're so they're so aggressive. And I'm like, and when I haven't looked them up in a while, but last time I looked them up, I was not impressed by their records. And it, it's just like in 
they cost you. I, I cannot stand them. <laughs> Maybe they changed their practices, but we used to have an office years ago in La Jolla and you just, you couldn't walk anywhere with them. And I'm like going crazy. And then the other, I think was Greenpeace. And at the time I was working full time for like an environmental consulting company. I'm like, this is like, I'm doing stuff every day. Like, okay, maybe not directly with the environment, but supporting people who are. And I don't want to get harassed because I'm not signing up to donate like $15 a month for, for whatever. Yeah. I, yes. I just, I can't stand it. It's the guilt. And I don't like signing up out of guilt. I'm like, I sign up, I look up my organizations, I donate to them. I'm already doing my part and I just want to go get my groceries or I just want to cross the street. Yeah. Speaking of Rob Greenfield, no wonder he grows his own produce. <laughs> Anyway, sorry. I was just, I was gonna activism. That's I was gonna say activism, activism is our sacred duty, but maybe it's not. Yeah. Well, I would, I would, I would parse that a little bit and say we're all activists on some level, right? I don't care where somebody fits on the political spectrum. You know, you could say that Bernie Sanders is an activist, just like you could say, dare I say his name, is an activist. Podcast. And I would, like to, I would like to caveat, I was ready to put on a fireworks show of joy and celebration yesterday at the Great Departure and the, the return, the end of the Fourth Reich, if you will. Oh, my gosh. That's hilarious. But, uh, you know, but seriously, though, like activism exists in all sorts of different ways. Now, I think for somebody that self-identifies as an activist, just specifically for what you said, there's a, there's a responsibility that we have, right? I, I firmly believe that, like, the moment somebody opens their mouth to speak out either in opposition or support or anything like it's, it, I think it's a moral imperative to be doing something about it. Mm -hmm. Not to room and grouse and, and, you know, and talk about how terrible things are and then go back to whatever stuff we were doing and not care. Like, I think it's important like if we're going to open our mouths and we're going to speak out against an injustice that we perceive, whatever that may be, regardless of where we fall on the spectrum, we should be doing something about it. Right. And I'm so glad you said that And just cause it's, it's so important and it's so worth repeating that, um, you know, like, and I think too, a lot of people don't know where to start. They care about something or like you said, it's, it's sad, but it, like something happens and it, that's what drives them into action. But at least you kind of now have that, you know, for better or worse, that motivation to do something. And we had mentioned, way too many times probably now, but Rob Greenfield, when we talked to him, um, cause we just re recorded that shortly before this was that, um, he said the same thing. He's like, if you want to feed a million people, just start with one, like mm -hmm. how can you feed a million people if you haven't fed one person yet? And so I think that's the thing is some of these problems seem so big and so overwhelming. And it's like, where do you start? And you don't, you know, if you can feed a million people, that is amazing. You should definitely do it. But at the same time, just feeding one, like just starting somewhere and doing something and it, it can be, it can be very simple to take action towards the things you care about. And I, I really appreciate too you saying that we're, we all have some sort of activism within us, like whatever that is. Um, we don't all a hundred percent have to be on the same page, but there are a ton of, ton of areas uh, to help. I think what what I what activates within me when I get when I talk to Upcycle and company and about I just knocked over the table native fertilizer is that um, there was a stat a few years ago that if organic compost was used for agriculture in California it would sequester all the carbon necessary to meet our greenhouse gas emissions targets. Mm -hmm. And that kind of blew me away because, again, we have so much farmland in California and we have so many sources of organic waste, like horse manure, um, leaf litter, food waste, et cetera, mm -hmm. that we can make a humongous difference just by changing our agricultural practices and demanding that. And then and I learned about that and I sort of shared this with one of my clients at the time. And fast forward a few years later, that client actually hired me to be on their executive team to develop a geothermal power plant and a lithium mining facility at the southern end of the Salton Sea. And, and when you get there, you learn, and I've, I learned about it in college, obviously, but the talk about injustice, the environmental contaminants that the Imperial Valley is suffering is horrendous. I mean, the county is the poorest in California. 
It has, it's in the 90th percentile for cardiovascular disease. Over 15,000 children have asthma. And this is because the salt and sea is receding and exposing these soils and the soils are getting kicked up in the air and the soils are full of contaminants from runoff from agricultural practices. So to put it full circle, we could potentially restore a community's health by restoring the soil health and covering the exposed playa that is kicking up all these contaminants. Of course, it's not the be all end all solution, but it's one thing that we can do. And look, there is a product that does just that. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, thank you for the tee up on that. That That's kind of the whole point of, you know, where we're going. So the native soil fertilizer, that was our, our consumer brand. But where we're focusing our efforts now is upcycle active fertilizer. So we've kind of updated our brand. And what that really does is that takes into account these five different components that we condense into one product. So it's, yeah, there's your nutrients, but there's the organic matter piece. And like, that helps hold more water in the soil, right? So it increases the water absorption capacity by 15%. Um, the carbon piece, that sequesters carbon for the use of the plant, but then also like carbon creates a home for microbes. So it helps to like proliferate the microbial colony. And then in addition to that, you pointed that out, carbon sequestration. There is a, like up to bear is now like looking at, at mechanisms and ways to trade carbon credits off of agricultural land, right? So it's, it's, it's an interesting space. We actually had a call a couple of days ago with a group called Region, which is they are kind of a, a certifying body and net buyer and then broker of carbon credits. And they work with a number of like large kind of Fortune 50 tech companies helping with their carbon offsets. But then they work with farmers and in different kind of, uh, you know, sort of large land spaces to validate and cultivate carbon credits for that exact reason. Um, the other thing is like the microbial piece, right, is like is building that. So a lot of companies will throw microbes in the soil. We actually provide feedstock for microbes so they can just keep growing instead of, you know, I'd say the analogy is like going to the gym three times a day, six days a week, and then not eating or sleeping afterwards. That is the status quo of adding like mycorrhizae and other types of microbes. We're actually like focusing on adding carbohydrates and amino acids, which function as a simple sugar and feedstock to feed the existing microbes in soil, right? And then we've actually feed them. Exactly. Like the microbes got to eat. Yeah. So that's kind of the the bigger picture for us. And then we've actually found that some of the hormones that are, that we find left over in our waste are actually beneficial. They increase nitrogen uptake up to 75% in plants. Mm. Um, And then they also help to build the immune system of plants as well. Mm. So ironically, we're taking, you know, beer grain waste, algae waste, human waste, food scraps, sterilizing, condensing it into our active product to literally activate the soil. And that's kind of the whole idea behind this, this active fertilizer movement that we're trying to start through our brand is, is just that, is by activating soil, now it takes care of itself and it deals with issues like you're talking about in the, you know, out of the Imperial Valley of like, hey, how do we, even for mitigation spaces, how do we just improve the quality of that land and soil? Like, What natural mechanisms are there Reminds me of, um, there's a guy that I got to know years ago. Jerry's probably in his 70s or 80s now, but he's a physicist and a, an engineer. And he told me that back in grad school in the, I think it was early 70s, they had a project put before them, which is to remove cadmium and arsenic from a contaminated field. Um, and it was in India. And all of his contemporaries in his class, they had pumps and filters and digging and all this sort of like intense, heavy industry, sort of from an engineer's perspective, like really exciting stuff. Yeah. I remembered from a, I think it was like a plant biology class that cattails feed off of heavy metals. <laughs> yes. Species. Yeah. yeah. He was able to remove 90% of the arsenic from a soil sample with cattails. And, and people do this because the mining industry uh, when when you're going to go do hard rock mining or you're going to excavate some soil to pull gold out of it or whatever you're going to do, you by law, federal, state, local law have to put the soil back to where it was. You don't just get to leave a hole in the ground. You got to put it back. And and that's called remediation. For those of you that don't know the word, now you do. You'll see it everywhere. Remediation often includes soil amendments because what they've taken out of the soil in terms of the commodities, the commercial viable products um, is actually taking the food out and the yummy goodness. And so they got to put some yummy goodness back. 
And those soil amendments are like the fertilizers that you're talking about. So it's not just, you know, regenerative organic agriculture or sustainable agricultural practices. It's also soil remediation from mining or like brownfield restoration and, and things like that. There's a lot of application. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's the demands that we put on the earth are staggering. 70% of the earth is water. Currently, of the that remaining 30%, 25% has been clear cut and sort of chopped down for agriculture to meet the needs of human population using synthetic fertilizers. We're going to have to increase that to 35% by 2050. And uh, did I say world population? I'm not sure if I just said U.S. population, but for the world population. Um, ironically, organic farming techniques would require even more land than that. So as good as they are, requires more space. So that, that's why it's so important. Like when we're putting things into the soil, if it's landscaping, if it's mitigation projects, if it's agriculture, it's our own backyards, you know, and that really gets back to what you were saying before, like, what do I do? And Rob's whole point about like feed a person, you know, it's, it's principled actions, it's daily things like that. Um, you know, that's what we can do is like try to improve the soil. And if Bill Gates is listening, which I know he is, he just became. He he recently um, became the largest agricultural landowner in the United States. Really? really? Yes. And so if he's listening, he has a he has an he has a potential to make a significant impact on sequestering carbon and encouraging more regenerative agricultural practices, including active fertilizers and the appropriate soil amendments needed to be long lasting. I mean, that's Bill. Well, you're, we're here for you when you're ready, sir. We are. Um, so um, I don't know if you can share this, but how do you source or where do you source the organic waste to make your product? Um, I don't want to give out the specific names, but we have a wastewater agency that we've, we work with. Um, so what they do is they got a really cool process that like, I thought it was kind of gross at first before I knew it. And then I learned it. I'm like, this is brilliant. Like in its utter simplicity, it's brilliant. And in the quality of what comes out of it. So they literally take all of the human waste and food scraps that we dump out of our houses um, they separate the liquid and the water, the solids, all the trash is taken out of the solids. So then the solids go into what's called an anaerobic digester. It's like a massive, massive circular, probably 40, 50 foot tall by like hundred foot wide vat that is full of massive colonies of bacteria. And all that stuff gets slowly spun around and the bacteria just go to town. They eat it, they chew it, they break it down over about 30 days. Um, all the gas that comes off, methane is what off gases from the bacteria from this massive process. So that actually gets converted into electricity. So it gets turned into biogas. Um, one of our partners generates about 12 million kilowatt hours of electricity a year. That's enough power to power 2,000 homes in San Diego per year, just for perspective. Um, the second step is then after it's been um, anaerobically treated, it goes into what's called a centrifuge, which is just basically like a, a big... Um, sort of spinning mechanism that squeezes water out. So then it goes from there into what's called a rotary drum heat dryer. So the dryer, the core of it's 1200 degrees Fahrenheit and it moves all this stuff through three times. So what happens is it gets baked, it gets dried, it gets sterilized. So the viruses, the bacteria, the pathogens, anything that's like bad in our system, the thing, you know, pharmaceuticals and stuff like that get broken down under that heat pressure. Um, and then it gets broken into these three millimeter consistent sized granules. Those all bake at 205 degrees Fahrenheit at the core. So that's what comes out after it passes through three times. So we take that. The second piece, if any of you drink beer, I just want to give you a big thank you. Because for every <laughs> pint of beer that you drink, you help to improve our soil. Um, the grains, so the two row barley, the hops, all the stuff that's essentially beer is like a giant tea. Ultimately, like you put all these grains and flavors and things into it and you steep it for about an hour and a half. And then it goes off to be, um, to be processed and fermented. But the leftover is all this grain waste. So we've got a, a group that we work with up in Fresno that sources dried grains for us. Um, and then the last piece is algae. So we work with a, a leading spirulina algae producer. So they make food grade spirulina. There's kind of a tipping point. Um, in terms of the quality of product where they can no longer use it. So we take the stuff that can no longer be used in food grade products. Um, and then we take their sludge, basically the, the sort of sediment that's left over. Again, we dry and sterilize that. We grind up the three of these things. 
and that is our product. So we built out a, a couple of patents around this product, um, around the sources, around how it's treated, around how it's made. So it's a process and utility patent. Um, and that's it. There's no other additives. It's literally just all organic waste that we've identified as getting to like these super high concentrated thresholds of carbon, of amino acids, of carbohydrates, of organic matter, of like balanced water soluble and insoluble. So some nutrients available right up front, some breakdown over time. Um, and of a small amount of those beneficial hormones we talked about. And that is upcycle active fertilizer. Wow. I love it. <laughs> simple as that, huh? I know. Yeah, I'm just kidding. Like it's amazing how much learn, like how much you know about all these processes and it's like so technical. I mean, like Laurel said, I think you know, Laurel's similar where it's like you guys are both entrepreneurs and business people, but like mm. have like this deep technical knowledge and it's just to someone like me, it's very, very impressive. <laughs> you know what's beautiful about it is you know, you asked about my background. I studied political science history in French in college. I, I did we? not yeah, I like literally have learned all this stuff as I go. Like I can thank Larry and Sergey from Google for this. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's, it's literally this is this is what the internet of the you know the '90s was the promise of was the democratization of information and the readily the ready access to it. You know, it's that in the Fertilizer Institute. Um, you know, they've got reams and reams of information on their research links on their page. So I literally just sat down and started reading this stuff and like learning it. And it's been five years. So it's not like I just learned it overnight, but um, you know, that, and then we partnered with, uh, with Fresno state through their Valley Ventures Ag Accelerator program. And then we work with the center for irrigation technology up there, which is kind of their, their outward facing research arm. So just meeting with Tim, um, you know, the senior agronomist that we work with up there, Tim has opened up so many, he's opened up my eyes in so many ways, just the things I didn't understand. Like, I didn't understand the carbon cycle and how it worked. And I didn't understand all these like nuances of microbes and how they worked. I just knew we made a product that worked well, but not really why. And it was yeah. that partnership and all that research and really Tim in a lot of ways, kind of just sitting down having a cup of coffee in his office and teaching me like how this stuff works. That made me realize like really what we have here and, and why it's special and why it's unique and why it's, so much more than just some organic waste and a fertilizer and so much more than just a damn fertilizer product. Totally. Yeah. Thanks, Tim. I want to meet this Tim. I know. Yeah, thank you. Tim. <laughs> so yeah, we're about, um, at our time. And so I guess before we wrap up, one thing is, um, you know, what, like, do you have your VHAG or like your, you know, moon shackle, whatever that is, is that defined? Um, in terms of what, well, like, what, what are you, what are you shooting for? If you're like, okay, we will like, um, you know, kind of like we talked about earlier a little bit is like putting yourself out of business, you know, because the soil is so fertile. Like, is there a, a like a 10 year, 20 year goal for like, oh, wow, we, we did this. If um, not, Co is higher, right. it can be hired for services. Yeah. So I, I appreciate that. I think, you know, for us, the the audacity of our approach is the fact that we're creating this new, this whole new way of thinking and discussing and understanding soil. And this again, it's 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 growth ag, it's plant agnostic, right? So from our like our competition has you know they'll make you any kind of customized product, and that's fine if you believe in sort of traditional agronomic practices. So I think just our goal is completely shifting the way that people manage their soil. If you, if we had like a BHAG, but I think what's actually most important to a business. And I would challenge you on this, Jessa, um, or at least the question on this is the day-to-day -day execution tour of what we're doing. Right. So I, I find that it's, you know, while we kind of know what we want to do, we want to get our customers off of fertilizer, right? We want to get soil to that level where it's self-sufficient but where I really live is like, what am I doing at 10 a.m., 11 a.m., 12 a.m. today or 12 p.m. today to get towards that? And how are we building a structure for our team that, you know, we can execute upon every day? Because it's I, I fears and I've, I'm victim to this, too. I've done this before in past businesses, and even in this current business, like getting excited about the big vision. But then it's like, how do we get there? So I'm all about like what measurable daily activities can I 
as the CEO? Can my team, Kate, our commercial sales director, Tyro, our sales consultant, our ops team, everybody, what can we all be doing every day? And how do we sort of standardize those processes so as we bring in new people, we can show them, hey, you know, a new sales rep, if you do this activity, if you're done by 12 or by 5 p.m., it doesn't matter. You just need to do this every day. That's it. Stick to that and repeat that every day, day in and day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out. And I know that by doing that, we'll get to that point where suddenly like a customer comes back and says, so we had a soil test done and we need about 20% less fertilizer this year than last year. That to me, that's a win, you know, that and or, you know, we put some some sensors in and we note that like, hey, you were losing, I don't know, 50 percent of your nitrogen before. Well, now you're losing 30 or 35 even, you know, when we start to see those measurable impacts, even on a micro level, like just a customer site level, that's success to me. That means we're doing our job. That means we're improving the environment. And that means we're giving an incredible brand experience and value to our customers. And anything else is just noise. Love it. Thank you for that. Thank you for that explanation. And uh, I, I'm going to keep that in mind, yeah. your uh, approach. And so um, thank you so much for joining us. We'll wrap up um, with our three-point landing. So what are three key takeaways that our listeners can walk away from this podcast to have? Um, let me make it about your listeners then. Okay. In whatever it is that you are doing, you've chosen to, well, in whatever it is you're doing, choose wisely, right? And choose with passion. Um, be persistent in executing against that and do it coming from a place of love and respect for others and you'll be successful. Love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here, Jess and Laurel. It's uh, it's an honor. Yeah. This is just the start of a, you can't get rid of us. This is going to be a long relationship, Jared. (laughs) Strap yourself in. I'm on (laughs) for (laughs) it. Thank you. All All right. Send it, Jess.